All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your post-apocalyptic monks speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So I am uh, back a bit early this month, and I'm, I'm here to talk about A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. This is a book that was originally published in 1959. And of course, as usual, right, the reason that I am back early is because we've received a commission to cover this book. These episode commissions are a huge part of how Clay Temple Media stays afloat. So I'm extremely grateful for this type of generosity. And also, frankly, I'm very grateful that the supporter who commissioned it put up with me taking much longer than usual to get this episode out into the ether. Usually our turnaround time, certainly for all our other shows that are short fiction based, is a matter of about a month. And then here on ATAS, usually it's about two months, depending on the length of the book. But this one went on a little bit longer than that. So thank you for bearing with me. But let's get to the point here. Uh, I was super excited to get this commission because A Canticle for Leibowitz is a book that I super loved the first time that I read it, and I've been eager to revisit it for some time. In fact, it has long been my intention to find a way to do this book on on one show or another on the network, and I'm really glad to have the impetus to do it here and, and, and to do it now, I think, especially. So this is one of those books that I, I read while I was in the army, when I was you know, reading two or three SF books a week, like minimum, uh, and also when I was grappling with some matters of, of conscience and also trying to figure out what to do with my life. This was a book that really spoke to me in that moment, uh, something we'll return to in our theme segment, but I think we should actually just get straight into this book without any more preambles. So uh, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's get into A Canticle for Leibowitz. This is not a long book. My copy is a little over 300 pages, but it is a big book. It is a book that is absolutely massive in scope. Broadly speaking, A Canticle for Leibowitz occurs after a a fictional Third World War, a a nuclear apocalypse. And so in that sense, it is a post-apocalyptic story. And in fact, it's it's one of the classic post-apocalyptic stories. But the book is not a single story. It is three novellas collected together, each of them telling a piece of the story. And each of them was published separately in the magazine of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, And so this is actually what's called a fix-up novel. Each of these parts has a new cast of characters and also then a new plot, uh, even as they are collectively building a coherent story that is not really about individuals or about characters at all. We'll talk more on that in the, the next segment. So here's the deal. Each of these novellas is set in the same place. It's a Christian monastery. Uh, Specifically, it is a Catholic monastery in the United States. Miller tells us that it is somewhere in the plains, and the the three geographic points that we get are Texarkana, Laredo, and Denver. Uh, These are the centers of competing empires that affect the monastery in the second novella. And I'm operating on the assumption that we're actually in the Texas panhandle here, but you know, I got married on a farm there, so that might just be some wishful thinking on my part. But I will say that the landscape in the Texas panhandle would work perfectly for what Miller describes. But uh, you might have some other thoughts about where in the United States this is taking place, and I'd, I'd love to hear about that on the, the forum. But of course, it doesn't actually matter all that much. And in any case, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here and invoking the second novella already. But even before I actually get into the story told in the first novella, let's, uh, let's get some of the backstory. So, World War III, nuclear annihilation. We don't know who started it. We don't know what led to it or any of that stuff. Uh, and that is intentional. But we do know that most of the global population 
is dead. But there are survivors. Uh, these uh, come from rural places and, and some people who managed to shelter in bunkers. And one such survivor was Isaac Leibowitz, the Leibowitz of the book's title. After this war, there was a real sense that the people to blame weren't necessarily the Russians who launched the, the missiles, uh, whether that was a, you know, a first strike or a retaliation, doesn't matter. Uh, it wasn't the Russians, but it was the scientists who had created nuclear weapons in the first place. And this ushers in a violent campaign against science, uh, against books, and just against educated people in general. Books are burned, and anyone with an education is executed. And Miller calls this the simplification, or, or, you know, that's what the monks centuries later call it anyway. I think it's a great name. And Leibowitz got caught up in this. He was an engineer, he worked for the American military, and he only narrowly escaped being executed by seeking refuge in a Cistercian monastery. And he was Jewish, but eventually he converted from Judaism to Christianity, and he took holy orders with the Cistercians, and he then devoted the rest of his life to preserving as much human knowledge as possible. He established an organization within the church that hid books. Uh, this is called book-legging, which is just awesome, and also memorized books. This is uh, just like in Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, though I don't actually think that idea originates with Bradbury. It's just the most famous example of this, uh, though I'm not sure where the uh, the origin of that is. I, I would love to know. If, if you know, I would love for you to let me know. And here we should say, too, that the, the people who memorize the books in this world, in this fictional setting, also spent their time making copies of them. Booklegging was dangerous work. I mean, the idea of the simplification, I think, can seem trite and, and maybe even a little silly to us, but Miller presents this as a dangerous and terrifying time. This was not a short-lived reaction to the nuclear apocalypse. It was a long-term strategy of the survivors, and they had special units that tracked down bookleggers and executed them and, and also found their trove of books and destroyed them. And ultimately, this happened to Leibowitz. And Leibowitz died before giving up the locations where he's buried his books. And this makes him a martyr for the church. And so the monastery that we're going to track through time is what is left of the organization that he founded. When we enter this world in the, the first novella, which is set 600 years in the future, it's the, the 26th century, Leibowitz has been beatified, and this monastery is still engaged in the business of copying books that they've preserved through book legging and, and through memorization. When we enter into the world of this first novella, we are entering into a world that is reminiscent of the early Middle Ages, or at least one idea that we have of the early Middle Ages. It's a world in which this monastery and the, the wider church to which it is connected are all that is left of civilization. There are no large political communities. Uh, much of what used to be the United States is under the control of barbarians, right? stateless people who live through marauding and highway robbery, and uh, most of whom seem to be descendants of people who were affected by the radioactive fallout of the, the, the war. The plot of this novella centers around the monastery's effort to sanctify Leibowitz, that is, uh, to get him officially recognized as a saint by the church. And this is something that has a rigorous process uh, to it. There's a rigorous process for determining who is a saint and who is not. I'm going to talk more about this process in the themes and motifs segment, but what matters here is simply that this process is the primary concern of the monastery's abbot. And our protagonist, who's a novitiate, uh, that is to say, a monk in training, uh, is a novitiate named Francis. He is comically screwing up all of the abbot's efforts to make a good case to the church hierarchy. 
I don't really want to dwell on the plot of this first novella very much because most of it is not consequential. Uh, from a storytelling craft perspective, the, this first novella really is here to do all the heavy lifting for constructing the, the world, really giving us all the, the backstory that I've already summarized. And Miller does this by hinging the plot around Brother Francis's accidental discovery of, of some, some artifacts of the 20th century, and then the, the question of whether or not they belong to Leibowitz, as, as Francis believes. But this story does end tragically with the death of Brother Francis. Uh, it's a death that comes at the hands of the barbarians who control the roads between the monastery and the church's headquarters in New Rome, wherever that is. Might be St. Louis is sort of my sense of it, uh, or outside of, anyway. Uh, and really, this is a very sad ending because we, we come to feel quite affectionate towards Brother Francis. The second novella then picks up another 600 years in the future. So it's the 32nd century now. And this world mixes up some elements of Western Europe from the Carolingian period, uh, also the 12th century Renaissance, and then the scientific revolution. And, and I'll try to unpack that as we go. This is a world that is much more populated than the world of the first novella. And some new states have formed as a result. The monastery is now located within the territory of the Empire of Denver, but the state that we are really concerned with is centered on the city of Texarkana, which officially for us, you know, our world, is two cities separated by the Texas-Arkansas state line. It is not a big place, and, and that's how it succeeds, right? It wasn't a military target, and so it was a good place to rebuild over the thousand years since the nuclear apocalypse. So now, Texarkana is the seat of an expansive and, and expanding kingdom. It's a kingdom that has rivals in the form of other states, but also in the form of the, the barbarians, uh, these barbarians who killed Brother Francis, but who are also continuing to be a nuisance. The ruler of Texarkana is humbly only titled Mayor, and this is Miller's joke about the Carolingian Empire that was the, the most powerful state in Western Europe in the 8th and 9th centuries. The Carolingian Franks were the dynastic successors to the Merovingian Franks, who they essentially overthrew. But the joke here is that the Carolingian family worked for the Merovingians with the title Mayor of the, the Palace, and uh, the first Carolingian ruler still only technically held that title. He was a mayor, not a king, even though he was the most powerful dude around. But none of that really matters. It just appeals to me as a medievalist. Uh, what's really going on here is that universities are a thing again. Texarkana has a secular university and also has an amazing scientist who is essentially a new Isaac Newton. He's been working on understanding electricity, also some other marvels, and he is really keen to restore the, the world of the ancients. Uh, he's also maybe especially keen to surpass them. The story here is that he is interested in checking out the ancient books, uh, that is to say, our books, books from our world. Uh, uh, he's keen on checking out the ancient books that our monastery has. And he wants the monks to, to send the books to him, but of course they won't do that. So he has to go to them. He does not want to do this. He's a really secular dude who thinks that religion is just superstition and also that religion is the thing that is getting in the way of technological invention and scientific discovery. But when he gets to the monastery, they show him that they've built a functioning arc lamp and that the, the books they have could be really useful in all sorts of endeavors. And so in the end, he comes to respect them and, and even to enjoy his time there. 
The other plot of this novella, there are two intersecting plots here. The other plot of this novella involves a looming war and also some tension between church and state. I'm going to talk more about that in the next segment. But for now, I'll just say that the scientist dude here, he's part of the royal family of Texarkana, and his goal of rebuilding the world seems to be at odds with his father's goal of conquering it. All right, let's do the last novella. I know this is running a bit long, but I love this book, so I can't help it. We catapult forward another 600 years, so now we are in the 38th century. This is basically the 20th century all over again. There are two nuclear superpowers in the world. Uh, One of them is the Asian Coalition, and the other is the Atlantic Confederacy. This latter is obviously just NATO, but it is interesting that Miller doesn't reconstruct the Warsaw Pact or even just the, the Soviet Union, but instead locates the other of this future in Asia. This is only a minor point, though, because the the real baddies in the story are the Atlantic Confederacy, which is to say us, right? It's the the new Americans of this imaginary post-apocalyptic future are the baddies. The Atlantic Confederacy is centered around the government at Texarkana. So, you know, that's been pretty fun. Miller has shown us the humble origins of what will become a superpower. And the Catholic Church here is still important. Our monastery is still here, still has important work to do. And the story here is that the two superpowers are on the verge of nuclear war. Uh, In fact, there has just recently been some kind of nuclear detonation that maybe was an accident or maybe was a test or maybe was an attack, but no one will take credit for it or explain it. The current abbot of our monastery sees the writing on the wall, and so he asks the Pope to order the start of a secret plan to send some of his monks and also their books, uh, which, you know, is to say the repository of all human knowledge, to send his monks and his books into space, where uh, Earth already has some colonies established. And this is in order both to preserve the church and to preserve the knowledge of civilization. And this is where we learn that for the past generation or so, the monastery has been quietly recruiting people with experience working in space. Uh, We're we're meant to understand that this is something of a a space-faring civilization, at least within our solar system. And also, we learned that the church has a spaceship for going to other star systems that they've just secretly built that no one else knows about. Now, we don't get the story of these spacefaring monks here. We are not going to follow the monks to a new world. This novella is focused on war and the consequences of it. Tensions escalate. The Atlantic Confederacy attacks some Asian military installations in space, and the Asian coalition responds uh, by, by nuking Texarkana. The monastery then becomes a refuge for people fleeing the nuclear fallout, and then a government medical unit arrives to treat people, and this includes a euthanasia facility for people who are deemed unlikely to recover. Uh, Now, to be clear, people are not carried off unwillingly, but they are counseled to report to this facility in order to end their suffering. Now, the church has a strong injunction against suicide. It is a grievous sin. And so most of the plot of this third novella is actually about the abbot's attempt to prevent the euthanasia clinic from operating, and then from preventing one particular refugee from taking her baby there. But still, the book does end on the theme of war, the the theme of nuclear war. The monks and some bishops, and in fact, mostly a bunch of civilians, actually, including children, blast off in their spaceship just as the superpowers are blowing each other up and engulfing the world in a second nuclear apocalypse. And it is this theme, war, that I want to take up first in our Themes and Motifs segment. So let's just slide right into that part of the show. So look, this is an anti-war book. 
that is its primary purpose. That's what Miller is doing here. He's not the only person writing books about the horrors of a potential nuclear war during the Cold War. I mean, it's a whole genre, really. But A Canticle for Leibowitz grows directly from Miller's own experience during the Second World War. Miller served in the Army Air Corps. He was a tail gunner and a bomber. And in this capacity, he participated in the Battle of Monte Cassino in the first half of 1944. Monte Cassino is a Benedictine abbey in central Italy. Uh, In fact, it was the monastery founded by St. Benedict himself in the 6th century. And this is, in fact, one of the watershed moments in the development of medieval Christianity, uh, medieval Western Christianity, I guess I should say. The abbey has been destroyed and abandoned and then refounded many times in the last 1500 years, uh, almost always because of war, in fact. During the High Middle Ages, the the monastery was a really important power in the region. It was fabulously wealthy. It had this amazing library. Really, it's, it's one of the treasures of the Middle Ages. And Walter Miller helped blow it up. And as the name suggests, right, Monte Cassino, the, the abbey is on a mountain. It's a hill, really, at least if you know, you've know you ever lived in the Rockies. And it overlooks a valley that is a choke point on the way to Rome, um, you know, if you're waging a ground war. And the Battle of Monte Cassino lasted for months as the German forces holding the area were able to pin down the Allied armies in this choke point. And there was some evidence that the Germans were using the abbey as an observation point for aiming artillery, uh, the artillery that was largely responsible for the pinning down. And so the Allied armies decided that they needed to destroy the monastery, and they did with bombers. And Miller was part of that operation. It was the, the tail gunner who was protecting the, the bombers from being shot down before they blew up their target, the monastery. The experience of this haunted Miller. When he returned home to America, he converted to Catholic Christianity. And then a decade later, he wrote the stories that became this novel. It's clear that this story, this this world that he's envisioned is, is part of It's part of Miller's reckoning with himself, but it's also part of his meditation on how he wound up in that position in the first place. And I think that's what sets A Canticle for Leibowitz apart from so many other anti-war books of the Cold War. He's not preaching a message of peace. He's not lambasting short-sighted and self-interested politicians. He's not proposing social or institutional changes that will prevent a nuclear war. Instead, he's arguing that this is simply in our nature. We are fallen creatures. We are prone to violence. We love war. And the only way to make war palatable, or really the only way to prevent wars from being utterly, utterly self-destructive, is to curtail the power of the tools of war, because we're going to keep doing this over and over because we are inherently flawed. But there is more to it than that. And in fact, what I just said is really kind of wrong, actually. Miller is arguing that there are other things we can do besides just abandon nuclear technology. And this is where the church comes in. When we first meet the church in this book, in the the first novella, the Monastery of St. Leibowitz is the repository of civilization. It's what's left. And it seems like this is going to be a story about how these science fiction monks rebuild civilization after an apocalypse, and that they're able to do it because they are part of an institution with a really long view of time, and also, therefore, the ability to plan for things over centuries and centuries. But it isn't. The world rebuilds without the monastery of St. Leibowitz, as we see clearly in the second novella. There, the central conflict is between what we might call church and state, and the state is pretty clearly the bad guy in Miller's view here. We get this conflict in two parts of that story. 
The most obvious is that the, the mayor of Texarkana, one of the new powers in this world, the mayor of Texarkana discovers that the church has been actively undermining his plans for conquest. They've actively been trying to maintain peace and to prevent war. And so he declares the Pope an anti-Pope and then proclaims himself the head of the real church and establishes his direct power over the church organization in his empire uh, and creates it really as an arm of the state. And we're going to come back to this. But the second part of this conflict is at the monastery itself, where the tension is between the secular and religious approach to science and technology, uh, to knowledge and learning. Thon Taddeo, this is the new Isaac Newton of this world, Thon Taddeo is openly belligerent to religion. He regards it as superstition. When he discovers that the, the monks not only have an amazing library, but also are themselves interested in science and discovery, he does reconsider that position. But he still thinks that knowledge and learning should be free of any constraints and that secular universities are, are the path to human enrichment, not monasteries. Miller, of course, is showing us that this moment is when the development of nuclear weapons became inevitable. It's a quest for knowledge without any moral principles to guide that quest. And there's a, a subplot in this second novella that involves the, the military retinue that has accompanied Thon Taddeo on his journey. Um, he's related to the mayor, so he needs protection. While Thon Taddeo is doing his scholarly stuff, the, the soldiers are spending their time drawing up plans for using the monastery as, as a, a base of operations in you know, some hypothetical but almost certainly bound to happen future war against the Empire of Denver. The monastery is extremely well fortified. I mean, it is a fortress, basically. That's how the monastery survived the aftermath of the apocalypse. And so it would, therefore, make an awesome base for an invasion. This is a real point of distress for the abbot. And, and ultimately, Thon Taddeo confiscates the plans and gives them to the abbot before he leaves. But the, the point is that it is simply in the nature of soldiers to see everything in terms of soldiering, right? Rather than spend their time in the nearby town or use the monastery's library, they do soldier stuff because that's their identity. That's their function. And so Miller's solution to the threat of nuclear war, or really any war, is religion, is the church. In both the second and the third novella, the church is an instrument of peace as well as an instrument of salvation. There's a scathing moment near the end of the book, uh, really at the point when nuclear war appears inevitable, and the Pope orders all the, the churches around the, the world, all the, the Catholic churches around the world, to engage in uh, prayers for the, the victory over the barbarians. Now, the, the government of Texarkana, and therefore most citizens, right, uh, think that this is a war liturgy, that the church is praying for a Texarkanan victory and for the annihilation of the Asian coalition. But it isn't. The barbarians in this moment are not the other country. The barbarians are the leaders of both countries. And the victory that is prayed for is a victory of the peaceful church over these bellicose secular powers. Ultimately, the, the secular powers can't even see this, right? It's a, it's a worldview that is just too far outside of their own peripheral vision to even be considered, to be noticed at all. Part of Miller's advocacy of the church here is that Christianity— like almost every religion, right, is a religion of peace. Most of my PhD research, for example, is about bishops and priests and monks 
during the fall of the Roman Empire, just to say people who are dealing with new states growing up during the disintegration of a longstanding superpower. And these bishops and priests and monks took as one of their major duties and responsibilities during this time the mission of preaching peace to new rulers who, who owed their positions and also their identities to continuous war. And this is the sort of thing that Miller has in mind. And in fact, the second novella felt very similar to the real-world instances that I've spent so much time studying. But another part of Miller's interest in the church as a means of protecting humanity from itself is that it is a strong institution with an ability to plan for the very, very, very long term. In particular, it is an agent of conservation and preservation, uh, perhaps even an agent of stewardship in an otherwise turbulent world. Ultimately, A Canticle for Leibowitz is a story about an institution, about the church, uh, an institution that possesses a historical continuity stretching back over 3,000 years and which survived a nuclear apocalypse. And on the brink of another nuclear apocalypse, that same institution is about to head to the stars with the remnants of humanity and the remnants of human culture surviving a second apocalypse and continuing to conserve and preserve and steward. All of that is the macro view of this entire speculative world. But of course, Miller tells this story from the point of view of a much smaller protagonist. Uh, That protagonist is the Monastery of St. Leibowitz. And the Monastery really is the main character of this novel. We're merely jumping into its story at different points in its existence. The humans are all different, but the Monastery itself is essentially the same as it just continues to weather the changes of the outside world and carry on with its mission. And so this is Miller's worldview. He believes in the power of institutions as a means of harnessing our potential. He believes in the power of institutions as a means for us to be greater than the sum of our collective selves. Uh, He believes in the power of institutions as a means for us to work together across time in order to be a force for good in the world. That is, he at least believes that about one particular religious institution. I want to think a little bit more about that institution, but I want to turn away from Miller's anti-war and and perhaps also his anti-technology theme here. And I want to look at the various medievalisms in this book. What I mean by medievalism is simply the appropriation of certain elements of the Middle Ages for some other purpose. Uh, Middle Earth, uh, Westeros, these are fairly obvious examples of medievalism, you know, or Guy Gabriel K, maybe I should say, because we've actually covered Guy Gabriel K on this show. But you can find elements of medievalism all over fiction and, and other types of art as well. From a zoomed out perspective, Miller is envisioning a second Middle Ages here. Miller's understanding of the first Middle Ages, or, you know, just the Middle Ages, is that this was the civilization that grew up following the cataclysmic end of the Western Roman Empire. And this civilization then flourished into a great civilization of its own, a specifically Christian civilization, and then was in turn replaced by a secular and scientific civilization that now, at the time of writing this anyway, is on the brink of nuclear self-destruction. But Miller doesn't stop there, and he often draws on some specific details that felt like 
in jokes, or you know, <laughs> it felt to me at least like in jokes. Now I, I've mentioned some business with Charlemagne already, and even this very important business about the soldiers assessing the monastery's value as this forward operating base. I mean, that's taken both from Miller's own experience with Germans using Monte Cassino in 1944, uh, but also from a 13th century war in which the, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II garrisoned the monastery with troops during a war against the Pope, uh, a war for control of Italy. That war was rooted in a series of episodes from the 11th and 12th century that today we call the uh, either the investiture conflict or the investiture controversy. Whatever we call it, this was a conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, that's anachronistic to, to say that, but I'm going to use that term anyway. So we'll just say between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. And it was a conflict over the question of who has authority to consecrate bishops in German lands where the emperor was also king. Now, obviously, right? The emperor thought that he did, and the pope felt differently. And this is the historical moment where all of our discourse about church versus state gets really crystallized. There's a, a ton of political philosophy that grows out of this conflict. And, and in fact, I've gotten to do a lot of that with my students when I taught a course on medieval political philosophy. That was an amazing course. I had such great students that semester. It was really one of the most fun semesters I've ever had. Now, I won't get into the particulars here, but the general idea was that the church, and then also the people who make up the church, that is to say, the priests, the bishops, and the monks, these were an arm of the government of the Kingdom of Germany, and, and also every other state in the High Middle Ages, because it was clerics, you know, priests and monks who, who preserved records and served as scribes and lawyers, as, as well as just general advisors. They also frequently served as judges, and bishops and abbots also were wealthy landowners. They were landowners who were fabulously rich, or could be anyway. Many bishops and abbots were landowners who were fabulously rich, who then also had a stake in the secular government of the kingdom. And since bishops wound up devoting a lot of their time to statecraft, and, and really often more of their time to statecraft than to sacred business, the, the Holy Roman Emperor thought that he should have some say in who fills those posts. Uh, you know, really, he thought he should have all the say. And this was a very messy, very complicated business. So all I will say is that there was a series of wars about this, and in the end, the Pope won. Now, where this enters into a canticle for Leibowitz is in the second novella, when the mayor of Texarkana makes the same exact claim that the Holy Roman Emperor did, though, you know, in this case, for much more clearly sinister reasons. I mean, I think the, the actual Holy Roman Emperor making this claim had you know some legitimate concerns there, whereas the mayor of Texarkana, he's just a baddie. There is an awful lot more that we could explore about medievalism in this book, but I am going to cut myself off here. Uh, in fact, I'm going to cut myself off even more than that because I'm, I'm running long. Uh, in fact, there's a whole theme I've got here in my outline that we're just not going to get to, but we will come back to it at the end of the show. So for now, let's just move into our strengths and weaknesses segment. So the first thing to say here is that I love this book, and I hope that that has been clear and the things that I love most about it, the, the elements that I think are the book's greatest strengths, are the themes and the world building. I mean, just the fact that I ran out of time before I could get to all the themes on my list should indicate what a rich book this is. And, and of course, I'd already distilled my list down from all of the possible things that I might have wanted to talk about. But also, the central theme that war is evil, and we shouldn't do it, and if we can't keep ourselves from doing it, then we should try to keep ourselves from having planet-destroying weapons. This is a big deal, this theme. 
The world badly needed to hear this message in the late 1950s, and and Miller wrote this book with a ton of pathos. I mean, it's a really emotional plea by someone who regretted his own participation in a highly destructive war. And the world, I mean, the world and the world building are just top tier in this book. I mean, this is some of the best you can get in speculative fiction. Miller largely builds his world through the perspective of his characters, right? He does this through their conversations, through their actions, through their thoughts. And he does this without a lot of intrusion from the narrator. This really helps the world feel smaller and and, and more lived in. It also just gives us readers the joy of having to figure things out for ourselves. And, and, And this is one of the real pleasures of this book in particular, but also just this type of book in general. The one weakness that I feel the book has is in part three, and this is when the world embarks on its second nuclear Armageddon. What I find weak at this point is that the anti-war message, which is so strong in the first two novellas, it gets muddled here because Miller really brings to the fore the theme of suicide. Suicide is a sin in much of Christianity and certainly in Catholic Christianity, and Miller has made this the central theme of the third part. I don't dislike that on its own. In in fact, that's the other theme that I really wanted to talk about. But it felt incongruous with the rest of the book. And it does, I think, make the whole thing feel less like a coherent novel and more like it is a collection of related stories. You can see that it is a fix-up novel here at this point. But really, that is a small gripe about what is otherwise just an absolutely astonishing achievement of a novel. Well, that's going to bring my review to a close today, but I do hope that you will visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or join me on our subreddit, which is just Clay Temple Media, and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I've brought up here, also the the strengths and the, the weaknesses. And of course, as always, I hope that you'll come talk with me about what I left out. And in particular, I'd be really interested in talking about the suicide motif in the the last part of the novella, but I would also love to talk about whether you think this book is ultimately optimistic or pessimistic. Does Miller think we have any chance of living peacefully, right? Are the, the monks and the bishops and the civilians going off into space to found a better civilization, Or are they just going to ultimately create a society that has a third nuclear apocalypse? How do you think that story ends? But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you would like to commission an episode of your own, either here on ATOS or for any of our other shows, which is to say, if you've got something you would like to hear us talk about, please get in touch with us. We really love doing these episodes and we really appreciate the support. So next time, we actually will be back with Eye in the Sky by Philip K. Dick. I think we'll just be back in one week to get to that book. And until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Thank you.